Hi folks, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, and the project is to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you're joining us here for the first time, you're joining a community of thousands of people around the world who've made the decision to transform their lives by making the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of their daily lives. So if you're here for the very first time, then why not click on that subscribe button wherever you got this podcast from, and that way you'll never miss another single episode. You are very welcome and you join a community of people who have made the same decision as you today to study the Bible and we're currently being listened to in over 168 countries around the world. I've actually been looking at the statistics this week of what we're doing and where we're reaching and I just thought I noticed a few places where new subscribers have joined us for the first time in some places and some countries that uh, I barely know anything about and also in some towns and cities that I've never heard of. So I'll just give a shout out if we've had a new person from Mauritius join us this week, someone from Kyrgyzstan, someone from Taiwan, someone from Malawi, and someone even from Chechnya. Now I never know who's actually listening, but I do get a breakdown regionally, and some of the places in the world where I've noticed we've had single new listeners join us this week and if you're that person well a big shout out to you we've had someone from a place called Varn which I believe is in Bulgaria what about Potter's Bar a little town in England here and I noticed there's someone from Wilder in Idaho never heard of that place before neither Wulanonagong Wulongagong in New South Wales have I got that right and somewhere I'm not really sure where it is but Kayang Song. And of course, good old Colesville, Indiana, has another new listener join us who lives there. I'd also like to give a special big thank you this week to people who've made the decision to support this work. I'd like to welcome Angela, Bill and Chris and Hannah to the Patreon community. You know who you are and you're most very welcome. And I really couldn't do this podcast without people like you and the way in which you help and support this ministry. And also then there's Rachel, who's actually connected with us directly on the Buzzsprout website. So welcome, Rachel, to the community of people who support this ministry. I'd just like to thank each and every one of you and each and every one of you who's just made the decision to listen and allow your life be transformed and allow the Bible to become part of the rhythm of your daily life. So you are very welcome. So I'm going to launch off in a minute into this week's study, but do hang around at the end, friends, particularly if you're here for the first time, where I'll tell you ways in which you can access a free transcript of each and every episode, plus lots and lots of other free Bible teaching resources. Everything I create is always free, freely available, and in the public domain for you to use whatever way you find helpful. So with that all said, I'll see you at the back end, and it's bye for now. Okay, people, today we're going to be, well, I suppose we're really going to look at the beginning, the revealing of the last act, the last part of Jesus's life, which is Matthew chapter 21. And this famous story where Jesus makes it, it's often called the triumphal entry in a lot of our Bibles, where Jesus 
enters the city of Jerusalem. So what I'll do, as I'll always do, is I'll just read the verses we're going to be covering today, which is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 10. And then I'll come back and try and unpack and think about what it means and how it applies to our lives today. Okay, Matthew 21, 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, that's obviously Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you say to them, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So then the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude went before those who followed, crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And just adding verse 11. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, with this passage, what we see is, well, we're embarking on the last act of this great God-ordained drama in the life of Jesus Christ. And it is indeed a very dramatic moment. Remember, it's Passover time and Jerusalem and the whole surrounding area is crowded with pilgrims. Thirty years later, a Roman governor would actually take a census of the lambs slain in Jerusalem during the Passover week, and he found that the number of lambs killed was nearly a quarter of a million, which speaks to the size of this annual event. It was a Passover regulation that there had to be a party of a minimum of ten for each lamb that was slaughtered, which meant that at Passover time, at least two and a half million people would have crowded into Jerusalem. Now, the interpretation of the law of Moses required that every adult male, Jew, who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem, must come to Passover. But not only the Jews from the Roman province of Palestine came, Jews desired and came from every corner of the world and made their way to this, the greatest of their annual festivals. Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment to make his appearance for he was going into a city surging with people, excited and expecting God to speak to them. A religious expectations of God doing something among his people would have been very high. And this visit, it was not a sudden spur of the moment decision that Jesus made. It was something that he had prepared himself for some time in advance, perhaps from the very beginning. The whole tone of the story shows that every step of this journey, one which would in fact turn out to be in the last week of his life on earth, had been planned well in advance. We see that when we read about him sending his disciples into the village of Bethany to collect an ass, a donkey and a young foal. Now Matthew calls the village Bethpage, but if we read Mark's accounts, he mentions Bethany. Now, no doubt the village itself was Bethany, 
but Bible experts have concluded that the village and the surrounding area was called Bethpage, so don't be misled into feeling there's any contradiction or error here. Jesus had probably arranged that the ass, uh, the donkey and her foal, would be waiting for him, which suggests to me that perhaps he had friends in Bethany, and the phrase that they were to use if someone came out and saw them untying them was that the master needs them. You might interpret that as a, as a sort of a password by which the owner would know that the hour had come that Jesus had prearranged to collect the, the animal. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he rides in on a young donkey. Now the fact that the donkey had never been ridden before is also especially important because it was by nature this meant that it was suitable for sacred purposes. By the donkey being unused in this way, this met a standard that was set by other Jewish religion, religious atonement ceremonies. For example, the red heifer, which was used in the ceremony of cleansing, must be a beast, and the quote is here, upon which a yoke has never come, and that was told in Numbers 19.12 and Deuteronomy 21.3. And furthermore, we see on the cart on which the Ark of the Lord was carried, we were told that it was to be a vehicle which had never been used for any other purpose. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 6. So the special sacredness of the occasion was underlined by the fact that this young donkey had never been ridden before by a man or a woman. Now the crowd we see initially received Jesus like he's a king. They spread their cloaks in front of him and that's what the people had done when Jehu was proclaimed king in the account. We see that in the account of events that take place in 2 Kings chapter 9. They cut down and waved palm trees. And this is also what they did at a very important event that occurred between the Old and the New Testament, which everybody would have had a historical knowledge of and seen as a high point in Jewish history. That was when Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem. And that most notable of victories and that similar entry process is documented in the book of 1 Maccabees chapter 13. They greeted Simon Maccabees with the greeting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a common greeting, which thereafter was addressed to pilgrims as they came to the feast. But they also shouted, Hosanna. Now we must be careful to understand what this word actually means. Hosanna actually means save us. It actually really means save us now. It's emphatic. It's urgent. It's a cry for help. It's a cry for help from people who are in distress and a cry that would be addressed to their king or their God. Hosanna, save us. Now, this whole phrase is in fact a reworking of a quotation from Psalm 118 verse 25 where we hear the call, save us, we beseech thee, O Lord. Now, it may be that the word Hosanna has lost some of its original meaning and it has come to represent only a cry of welcome and acclamation like hail in our modern thinking, but essentially the word actually represents a people's cry for deliverance, a people's cry for help in their day of trouble. It is the cry of an oppressed people to their saviour or their king. So this is what welcomed him when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But what was Jesus' intention when he rode into Jerusalem that day? Well, we can be sure of the fact that Jesus' actions in this situation were definitely planned and de deliberate. 
He was following a method of awakening the people's mind to the salvation and deliverance plans of God, a method that was deeply interwoven with the methods revealed in the Old Testament by the prophets, and in fact all of those who had gone before. Again and again in the religious history of Israel, when a prophet felt that his words were having no avail against a barrier of sin or just indifference or even incomprehension, misunderstanding, he would usually re-put his message into the form of a dramatic, evidential act, one which men and women could not fail to see and interpret as God moving among them. One of many Old Testament instances I would like to take a brief segue and talk about so that you can understand what's going on here. Well, I'll choose a couple of the most outstanding examples of things happening this way. In the first book of Kings, we find the account of someone called Jeroboam, who following a revolt against the ten northern Israelite tribes, well, put an end to the united monarchy. And when it became clear that the kingdom could not stand the excesses and the extravagance of the king who did this a guy called Rehoboam this guy called Jeroboam was marked out as the rising power that brought it to an end you see the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite he chose a dramatic way of revealing the future plan of God to the nation of Israel to him he dressed himself in a new garment and he went out and he met Jeroboam alone and he took the new garment and he tore it into twelve pieces. Then ten of the pieces he gave to Jeroboam, but two of the pieces he kept back. And by this dramatic outworking of this action, he made it clear that in fact ten of the twelve tribes were about to revolt in support of Jeroboam, while only two would remain faithful to Rehoboam. And here in 1 Kings chapter 11, we see the prophetic message delivered in dramatic action. Another time we see this sort of thing is when Jeremiah was convinced that Babylon was about to conquer Palestine, despite the sort of ignorance and continued optimism of the people that everything was fine. And what he did was he made bonds and yokes and he sent them to Edom, to Moab, to Ammon, to Tyre and to Sidon. And he also actually put a yoke upon his own neck that all might see it. And by this dramatic action he made it clear that he saw nothing but slavery and servitude lying ahead. For the people of God. And when Hananiah, the false prophet, the one who had sort of led this false sense of optimism that everything was fine, when he rejected Jeremiah's perspective and he wished to show him what he thought of what he probably just thought was a gloomy prophecy and it was wrong, he actually took the yoke from Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. And you'll see that story in Jeremiah chapter 28. So what I'm getting here is that it was often the custom in Israelite history for prophets to express their message, if it was unheard, via a dramatic action, when they felt their words were not enough and not getting through. And that's what Jesus is doing here by his choosing to enter Jerusalem in this way. He wants to paint a picture, a picture which people can see if they have eyes to see it. But there are two senses to the picture that lie behind Jesus' dramatic action, I believe. There is the picture which they should have been familiar with from Zechariah 9.9, in which the prophet saw, and I quote, the king coming to Jerusalem, humble and riding upon an ass, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you see in this instance, Jesus' dramatic action by entering Jerusalem in this way was a deliberate messianic claim. 
He was here offering himself to the people at a time when Jerusalem was surging with Jews from all around the country and the wider world. And he was presenting himself as the anointed one of God. Now exactly what Jesus fully meant by the claim, they perhaps didn't fully understand or see, and we shall go on to see what that actually meant shortly, but that he makes the claim here by his actions, of that there can be no doubt. But there may have been another intention in Jesus' mind. One of the recent, fairly recent, supreme disasters of Jewish history was the previous capture of Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes around 175 BC. Antiochus was a Greek Hellenistic king who ruled the Seclusid Empire from 175 BC until his death around 164. Antiochus was also determined to stamp out Judaism and immediately after securing power he tried to forcefully introduce into Palestine the Greek way of life and worship. He deliberately profaned the temple by offering pig's flesh on the altar, an absolute abomination to Jewish sensibility, and he made sacrifices there to the Olympian god Zeus. He even turned the temple chambers into public brothels. It was then that the Jewish people, under the leadership of the Maccabees, a group of Jewish rebel warriors who took control of Judea back from them, which, remember, at that time was part of this empire, well, they, under Ma the Maccabees, they rose up against the occupational force and they ultimately rescued their native land, brought it back under Jewish control for a while, and Jerusalem was retaken and the desecrated temple was restored and purified and rededicated. In the book 2 Maccabees chapter 10, we read about the rejoicing of that great day and it's described in this way. I quote, Therefore, they bare branches and fair boughs and palms, and they also sang psalms unto him that he had given them good success in cleansing his place. So on that day, the people carried palm branches and they sung psalms, and this is an almost exact replication of what is now happening 200 years later by the actions of the crowd who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. Now it seems very likely that Jesus knew all this, and that he entered into Jerusalem with the deliberate intention of cleansing God's house, just as Judas Maccabeus had done 200 years earlier. As we shall soon see, that is indeed in fact what he will exactly do later on this day. But by entering Jerusalem this way, he may very well be saying in a very dramatic, symbolic way, not only was he the anointed one of God, the Messiah, but also that his purpose in entering here today was to come and cleanse the house of God from the abuses which defiled it and its worship. In the text of the Mean Old Testament, we see this event in fact prophesied that the Lord would indeed come to his temple in Jerusalem. Malachi 3 verse 1 tells us that. And there's also a vision of judgment in Ezekiel where we are told that the judgment of God will begin in his sanctuary. And that is in Ezekiel 9 6. So anyway, to conclude our study today of this opening incident and the entry into Jerusalem, let us just look at Jesus in his setting and what's going on here. And I'd like to conclude by just thinking about the three things about him that it tells us. Firstly, I think that it shows his courage. Jesus knew full well that he was entering a hostile city. 
No matter how enthusiastic the crowd might appear to be at this point, he knew the fact that they would turn against him and also he knew that the authorities, that the people in charge, hated him and they had already sworn to eliminate him. Almost anyone in such a case would have probably considered discretion the better part of value and most sensible people, I suppose, if they did feel they had to come to Jerusalem, they would have slipped in under cover of night and kept discreetly to the back streets until they reached a safe place, not come in in this dramatic way. But we see Jesus here enter Jerusalem in a way that deliberately sets himself at the centre of the stage and deliberately calls attention to himself. And all through this last days, this last week of his life, it seems to me that every kind of action has a sort of glorious defiance about it. He knows he's here and he knows he's beginning his last act, his last week on earth, and he begins it by flinging down a gauntlet, a sort of challenge to the authorities to do what they feel they must do. But secondly, it also shows very clearly his claim to be God's Messiah, God's anointed one. At the very least, it shows that his claim today is to be the fulfillment of that prophetic cleansing of the temple. But we need to understand that Jesus is not content here to claim to be only a prophet. Jesus is satisfied with nothing less than stepping forward and claiming the highest place by offering the highest sacrifice as the Messiah, the sacrificial Son of God, the Lamb of God. You see, with Jesus, it's always all or nothing. People must acknowledge him as king or not receive him at all. And that, my friends, is still true today. And it is still the stumbling block upon which most people trip and fall. But finally, it also shows us the nature of the appeal that he makes to us and the claim that he makes. His claim was not one of earthly kingship. It was not one of a worldly throne. It was a call to be a king for a people who had surrendered their hearts and their wills to him. And he enters, he comes here, he comes to us humbly and riding upon a donkey. He does not appear in kingly regalia or on a white horse. We must be careful to understand the real meaning of the choice of the donkey as his arrival animal. At that time, the donkey or the ass, as it's sometimes called, could still be considered a royal animal upon which a king might enter. If a king came riding into a city upon a donkey, you see, it was a sign that he came in peace. If he came on a horse, well, the horse was the mount of war. The donkey was the mount of peace. So when Jesus entered the city, yes, he claimed to be king, but he's claiming to be the king of peace. He shows that he does not come to destroy, but to love. Not to condemn, but to help. Not by might of arms, but by the power and strength of love. So here, at one and the same time, we see the courage of Christ, the claim of his messiahship and kingship, and his call that he wished to make upon the lives of people. And friends, this is fast approaching the very last invitation to men and women he will make, an invitation to open up, well, not their palaces, but their hearts and their lives to him. And he still, I believe, makes that call to each and every one of us today. Okay, friends, there we are. Thank you very much for joining me. I do hope you find that helpful.
May I remind you, my name is Jeremy McCandless and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is to work through the whole Bible together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. This podcast is hosted on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com and that's the place where you'll find all the links to all the other free resources I make. Places like YouTube, Facebook group, the Patreon page, where lots of additional free resources available to everyone, not just people who have become a patron. Free additional discipleship type courses, as well as appearing over the next six months will be PDF versions of all the books that I have made available over the last 10 or 15 years. Always free, always freely available, and always in the public domain. And that's also the place that you can choose to support this ministry if you want, along with there's a link on the Buzzsprout website. It doesn't matter where you're getting your podcast from, you can subscribe and receive it anywhere, and there may well be active links there where you can connect to us in other ways. But if not, the place to find everything in one place and links to everywhere else is thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. So with that said, thank you again to each and every one of you who've joined me today. And whether you're here for the first time or you've been here from the beginning, that's great. Maybe you're doing it day by day with me, or maybe when you stumbled upon this, you chose to go right back to the beginning and do it at the pace that suits you. And that's fine. It is important, I believe, that you make the decision to make the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life, but the pace at which you do that is entirely your decision. So thank you so much for joining me. I do hope you'll join me again tomorrow when I see you right back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.